Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and IoT data sensing. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 327. Our guest this week is Mike Kahn. Mike Kahn has been working in the high-tech industry for over 30 years. The bulk of this time, he has been involved in the architecture and design of complex electronics and embedded systems across a wide variety of segments, including general-purpose computing, digital communications, digital video, medical devices, and life sciences instrumentation. Mike is currently the Vice President of Device Engineering at Elemental Machines, a startup that has created a service that allows lab ops professionals to monitor their lab equipment through a combination of IoT devices and a suite of cloud applications. Thank you, Mike, for coming on our podcast to talk about uh, what we're we going to talk about. There's you, a variety of Elemental stuff. Machines and... Uh, like enterprise consumer, no, not no, not consumer, no, not consumer electronics. Enterprise right. electronics, which is that's I, I'm super excited to hear about. Sure, thank you for having me. I I'm um, looking forward to the conversation. So, um, I think we'll first start out though, Mike. Is how did you get started in all of this? <laughs> <laughs> it goes pretty far back, actually. I um. Uh, I first had my first exposure to a computer when I was in the seventh grade, and um, we got an Apple II. Uh, so that shows you how old I am, I guess. We had an Apple II at the uh, the high school that I went to, or my, the middle school rather, um, and I kind of fell in love with technology at that point. And uh, I was pretty sure I wanted to do something with computers when I went to college and then for my career. Um, I, I think originally I thought I was going to do some sort of software development. and. Um, my next door neighbor, who is about six years older than me, actually majored in computer engineering in college, and it was really interesting to me. And, and so I decided to pursue that as a college major. Uh, and I found that I had a real interest in the hardware side of things uh, in addition to software. So one of the great things about that computer engineering major, particularly back in, in the late 80s, is that you could go into hardware or software depending on, on what area interested you. So I came out of school. Um, and, and I guess uh, I started working my way through. I think when I was in college, what I wanted to do was to design computers, you know, general purpose computers that ran user code, didn't really understand a whole lot about what the embedded industry was all about and didn't realize that that's probably significantly larger than, than, than general purpose computing. And so I started out working for a company that made uh, Unix servers. Um, that company no longer exists. <laughs> but um, I did eventually find my way into communications. Uh, and, and, you know, as I look back on my career, I think every change that I've made during the course of the, the career wasn't necessarily planned. But looking back through the history of things that I've done, it's always been a logical step. So I went from computer design. When I got into the communications industry, I started designing really the, the compute engine for switches. Um, and then I started picking up that whole communications piece. And then when I moved into digital video, that was really, uh, I worked on a video on demand streaming server, a startup that did a video on demand streaming server. And that was really a switch. And so it was that communications expertise, moving data through this switch that gave me the exposure to digital video. When I moved into med medical devices, that was um, a product that we moved digital video around a hospital operating room. And so there was this natural progression. And then eventually, 
uh, when I stopped doing actual product development and moved into medical devices, excuse me, into the life sciences business, a lot of that was around um, understanding quality management systems, how to, how to take um, complex electronics and scale them and, and build robust electronics. And then that was what got me into the life sciences business. I spent six and a half years working for a company that makes instrumentation that's used by um, the life sciences industry. 50% of that company's business is pharmaceutical. And that's where I saw this need for um, lab operations and lab managers to really start to get control of their instruments. Because if you look in a typical pharmaceutical lab, whether it be in QAQC or on the research and development side, they have this wide array of equipment from multiple different vendors. And uh, it was nice to see what Elemental Machines was doing to bring all of this information about how that uh, those instruments were working into one single location so that people could then monitor their instruments without having a million different bespoke implementations of that. So uh, yeah, I guess that's sort of my uh, career story there and in a nutshell. Well, the end there seems to segue really uh, great into uh, what Elemental Machines is. Can you give us a rundown on that? Sure. So, um, you know, we, we provide a service to lab ops professionals and you know, you think of lab ops in the same way that you think of uh, DevOps in the computer world. Um, DevOps people started out as just, you know, they were sysadmins, right? And they had a very narrow focus. But over the years, they took on a broader and broader role within within uh, a Fortune 500 sort of environment. And, and what we do for lab ops is the similar kind of thing, where originally I think people thought of them as lab managers, and their role is becoming broader and broader and really are concerned with the whole operation of a lab. And so we provide a service for those lab ops professionals that allow them to monitor the equipment that's in their lab and then make intelligent decisions about how to spend money on either capital or operational um, types of reasons. And the way we provide that service is through um, a set of IoT devices that are either dedicated sensors or data movers. And we connect those IoT devices to the cloud, and we have an application in the cloud that allows the users to then see what's going on with the instruments in the lab. And we also have this analytics piece that is uh, taking some of that data that we have and giving them insights into how their, their instruments are running. Just uh, perhaps from my ignorance, uh, can, you, can you give me a rundown of what a data mover is? I can guess, but just to- Sure. Sure. It's a, it's a, it's a, I guess it's a term that we coined in our device team. Um, so a lot of these instruments that you find in a, in a typical pharma or biopharma lab, they, they might have a bunch of sensors embedded inside of them for actually running the instrument. Um, take an incubator, for instance, where the, the chemist is growing a culture or the biochemist is growing some sort of a culture. They actually have to do a closed loop control on temperature and maybe humidity or CO2 levels. And so, of course, in order to do that level of control, you need to have sensors embedded in the instrument. Well, they provide that same data on an interface on the back panel of the instrument, and we can just tap into it with either a digital interface for RS-232, 45, sometimes it's Ethernet, and we package that information up and then move it up to the cloud for our application. And some instruments actually have an analog interface, 4 to 20 milliamp, that you find in, in a typical industrial application. And again, it's just that in our case, we're taking the, the information off of that 4 to 20 milliamp interface, packaging it up and sending it up to the cloud for our application to then report to the customer. So it sounds like those interfaces are 
quite varied in how they get exposed to the world on the back panel, as you said. Um, Because we we were talking a couple months ago, uh, Steve and I, about um, uh, electronics lab equipment. And um, usually, more modern stuff at least, is there's a a standard for it. Um, It doesn't sound like there is a lab standard, so to speak. There, there, yeah. I mean, the lab instrument industry is is huge, and so, and um, I think it's largely lots of companies operating very independently. So there is no, there's no historical standard. Uh, a lot of these interfaces, it's just straight serial interface. So that's re- actually pretty easy for us to replicate over and over again. And and we actually have a team uh, within Elemental that we call our integrations team that they go and they pull down the data sheet for the um, the instrument and then they create a configuration file that gets loaded into our data mover device that is really just a mapping function, right? It says mm-hmm. here's the address and here's the data that we're getting and then it, it tells it how to package it to go into the cloud. There are some uh, other standards that are used. Um, we have some instruments that actually use Modbus. So we have a Modbus implementation. Okay. Um, but there's also some industry-specific standards. There's one that's called OPC XML, um, which is is used by a lot of analytical instruments. We don't have a lot of uh, interactions with that, but there are some instruments that we have done an implementation of that that OPC XML that's run over Ethernet. So it is it is pretty varied. Uh, but with we have um, you know we have a dedicated software developer who actually is responsible for doing that higher layer protocol that's running on either the serial interface or the Ethernet. So you aggregate all this data and package it up nicely and and provide it in a in a convenient way to display to the customer, right? Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Our cloud application is a dashboard, and and really the the primary. Um, or, or one of the original uh, applications was just alerting, right? So if you think of one of our dedicated sensors is a temperature sensor. And, you know, I, I think during the pandemic, the entire country has learned about minus 80 and minus 100 uh, freezers that they've been <laughs> storing the vaccines in, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out that these same freezers are used in, in farm, these uh, research labs for storing their cultures. And as you can imagine, if one of those freezers goes in the middle of the night, they, um, it costs a lot of money. Uh, either in um, the, the sample gets lost and the sample may be worth a lot of money or there was an, a lot of time that was invested in creating those samples. And so we have a sensor that um, it's a small uh, device that has a long thermocouple. So the sensor sits on the outside of the freezer. The thermocouple then snakes into the, into the freezer. Um, and then every 15 seconds, we send a temperature reading up to our cloud application and the user has the ability to go into the their dashboard and set an alert. And it says if the temperature drifts outside of this region for a period of time, then alert me. And they can get the alert with either an SMS text message or a voice call. We have an app, a mobile app so they can get a push notification or an email and allows them to act on that alert uh, almost immediately. Very cool. Do you, do you also have... Uh... Yeah, any controls that get sent down to the devices, or is this one-way communication? It's pretty much a one-way communication. We don't actually take control of the instruments. We're just monitoring how they're they're behaving. Yeah, that reminds me a lot of. Um, it's like a lab version of of uh, SCADA, I guess, which is like industrial control 
where it's like oh, I think they have two way communication, but mostly it's one way. Um, very it, that's interesting because I would never have thought of like thinking of like a lab or anything like that um, set up that way. Yeah, I think historically the lab the lab managers haven't really thought of it either. Um, well, you have you, know, you have your uh, interns or whatever monitoring <laughs> thing, right? That's right. Yeah, I, I think the way I view it is, you know, um, there's someone there's a clipboard on the on the front of each freezer, and 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 you know, I checked the temperature at this time, and it was. 37 or you know minus 80 and this time it was minus 80.2 and and it just really takes a lot of that out of the equation and i think it's again one of the things that the pandemic taught us is how do you do all this stuff remotely um they didn't want to send people into the labs to do that monitoring so uh if we can do it remotely through a dashboard and monitor an entire building at one time it really um it, it creates a healthier environment and also allows them to be a lot more efficient Kind of reminds me, uh, probably two years ago, I signed up for a, a, a service that uh, allowed me to connect some IoT devices and just have a dashboard up. And it was very much a hobbyist grade thing, but it seems like uh, overall it's the same general concept. That's right. And, and then on top of that, we actually have a data science piece of this as well. Uh, so we have a dedicated analytics team and uh, they're actually trying to draw some interesting conclusions about some of that data as it comes across. So for instance, with that temperature sensor uh, on the minus 80 freezers, we can actually detect when the freezer door was opened. And so we can even we can even do some predictive things like your temperature went out of range and maybe it's because the door was opened 15 times yesterday. And so it helps it helps them to manage that aspect of it too. Hmm. And do you allow the uh, uh, the customers to write their own uh, perhaps alerts or 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 um, I guess some of that predictive uh, uh, information back to them. Well, all of the predictive analytics is done is done by us, and we're you know we're in the process of rolling a lot of that out right now and, and gaining new insights into the data that we're collecting. So you're the uh, vice president of device engineering. What is your primary focus at uh, Elemental Machines? So as I was discussing, um, we have the device side where we do the sensors and, and the data movers in our, in our IoT gateway, and then there's the cloud application. And so the development of, the, of all of the hardware is uh, in my organization, the hardware itself, the embedded software and the embedded firmware, um, as well as system level verification and then, and then the design aspect. But the primary focus of my organization is on the development of the devices and then the actual cloud application is uh, is in another organization. But all that said, you know, we're one big happy family <laughs> within engineering at Elemental because it really is a system that we're delivering. And so when you're delivering a system, you actually have to make sure that everything goes together very nicely. So while we don't actually take a system engineering approach to this, we do work very closely across both cloud and devices so that we can provide the best possible solution for our customers. Yeah, you, you don't just design something and huck it over the fence. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. I mean, at a minimum, um, you've got the interface that you have to make sure is clean, but, but the, you know, there's some interesting aspects to this. Um, as a networking guy, I, I've always, I always think in terms of how network switches are built, and, and I talk about data planes and control planes. And, and I try to make analogies to things that I've worked on since then. And so going from the sensors up to our cloud application, that's what I think of as the data plane, but there's a whole control path 
that, that needs to be considered here as well. And some of the control path is entirely controlled by Elemental. And so we use third-party services for some of that. Um, but some of the control path is, is really up to the, the customer. Um, and it has to do with how we configure these devices. You know, when, when you're dealing with IoT devices, they at least one device needs to be on Wi-Fi so you can get out to the cloud. And so you know, Wi-Fi is a bear to deal with um, because it's, it's so widely varied that, um, so we, we have to do a lot of this configuration through our dashboard as well. And that's where there's really a, a lot of integration and, and, and collaboration between the device team and the dashboard team because the dashboard team, they know how to do the web applications, but they don't really have a good feel for how the devices themselves work. And so we have to work very, very closely together to, to put together a, a seamless sort of um, experience for our customers uh, in the dashboard, even though it's managing something that happens in the device. So um, my next question is about more about the hardware. Dig a little deeper into that. Sure. Is uh, how are they powered? Because you were mentioning Wi-Fi. Um, do they piggyback off the devices themselves, or are they just like a Walmart plug? Or yeah. So the um, it depends on which device you're talking about. So in in some of our devices, uh, so our gateway, for instance, is Walmart, right? That's that gateway itself um, is powered off of. Uh, uh, you know, your mains voltage, and it's got a pretty um, beefy embedded Linux kind of computer in it. It also has battery backup and, uh, and a cellular backup as well. So um, it can communicate through a variety of means. The preferred means is either Wi-Fi or a hardwired Ethernet. But you can imagine that if you're monitoring your freezer, you really want to monitor when the power goes out. And if the power goes out, you've lost Wi-Fi and yeah, you've also lost power. So that's why we have the battery and the cellular backup in there. Mm -hmm. So that's powered off a of mains voltage. Our dedicated sensors are actually all battery operated and they are not connected over Wi-Fi. They're um, wirelessly connected to the gateway. And then, um, and that's why we're able to, to run off of uh, a battery for those. And so then our, well, Oh, sorry. Uh, like uh, the wireless connection to the gateway, uh, are you using like 900 megahertz or what frequency is that? It's uh, 2.4 gigahertz. Okay, so yeah. just not, um, so it's like Bluetooth. Okay, okay, yeah. cool. Yes. Um, so, uh, yeah, and so that's the, the sensors. And then our dedicated data movers today are Wi-Fi. And, and, you know, the, the reason that those are Wi-Fi, we take the one that's the, uh, the analog, um, the analog one. It really, um, it doesn't need to be necessarily um, because it really doesn't require a whole lot of uh, uh, compute. It doesn't require, but, but the, the approach that we've taken to a lot of our hardware development is to do something that is kind of lean startup-ish in, in that we try to get a product into the hands of our customers as quickly as possible. Um, and then get as much validated feedback as we can before we harden it into something maybe battery operated. So uh, that element, uh, what we call the element C, is running off of a, an off-the-shelf computing platform. Um, and we designed a custom daughter board for doing the, it's really just an A to D on it. And then the next step is to harden that into something battery operated because really all it's doing is an A to D and then, and then pushing it over, over the Bluetooth back to our gateway. So... Um, Today, that's mains, mains voltage powered, but in the future, that will be battery operated one. 
um, on the on the digital one, it's a trickier question because doing a digital interface, depending on the digital interface, may require a bit more power. And the other problem is with, or the other challenge with digital interfaces is that, you know, you take something like um, this OPC XML that I was mentioning, that's connected over Ethernet, and the instrument might want a DHCP server. <laughs> Yeah. So we're not doing that in some microcontroller. And so, uh, you know, figuring out exactly um, how to get that into a battery powered uh, application, that's actually something that's going to be coming down the road. I, I just I have to go back to you using the word harden on that. Um, I'm I'm absolutely going to steal that now. For, for all of my prototyping at work. Instead of admitting that my prototypes have issues, I'll just say that they're a little soft and we need to harden them. <laughs> Glad I could be of service to you. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, so, I, I, I've actually never heard of that term being used, like hardened like that, because I, I use like locked in or something like that. I like that term though. Yeah. I, I'm not a big fan of Steven's softened term, <laughs> but I do like the hardened term. So, so every customer is a unique client, uh, and with all unique um, uh, applications, right? So, uh, are you handling each client uh, individually in that way? Do you have like application engineers that work with them? Yeah. So, I mean, when you say unique, um, I think you're referring to maybe the kinds of instruments that they have. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as it turns out, there's a there are best sellers, I guess. <laughs> um, sure. So, you know, we've done integrations for the most popular incubators first. And then um, and then as we get new customers and we learn about new integrations that they need, like I said, we do have an integrations team that, that handles this and they take it on a case-by-case -case basis. So I wouldn't say that it's a custom for every customer. Uh, you know, I think that we can hit the bulk of their instruments right out of the chute. And, um, and, and then if you think about you know, if they're really just going for temperature monitoring, um, that's something we don't have to do an integration for at all. They just, they buy our sensor and they connect it to their freezer and within minutes they're seeing results on our dashboard. Sure, I, I guess I was meaning no two labs are going to be exactly identical. That That's absolutely true because they're all doing different things, yeah. yeah. So uh, in addition to temperature uh, sensing, what, what other things are you sensing? So we also have another sensor that um, does uh, what we call ambient sensing. And so um, that has four different sensors inside of it. It's got a temperature sensor, a pressure sensor, a light sensor, and a humidity sensor. And so that might be used for um, monitoring conditions in the lab because those kinds of conditions can actually impact experiments. Um, or they might, some customers actually will put that inside of an incubator that doesn't have sensors of its own. Uh, and where they didn't want to buy any off-the-shelf sensors, so we might use it in, in situations like that. So that's uh, that's our second oldest product behind the, uh, the, the the minus 80 temperature sensor. And then we have a recent uh, product that was released just last year, which we call the Element U, and U stands for utilization in this case. And, and in that one, we can actually strap this to a power cord um, in a non-invasive way and... Um, and measure, it's got four uh, Hall effect sensors on it, and we can measure the magnetic field and infer something about the power that's going through that through that power cord. So we're not getting uh, actual current draw, but we can get relative current draw and make decisions around how that instrument's being used. 
Um, is it on? Is it off? Is it idle? Is it actively being used right now? Uh, and that's actually where a lot of our analytics are coming into play. Um, and we think that, I mean, that's a relatively new product. Like I said, we just launched it last fall. And uh, we think there's a, a lot of opportunity in labs to, to be able to take advantage of a product like that. Yeah, it's an <clears throat> easy way to sense that something is happening, right? That's right. And, and you know, there, there are um, the, the advantages to doing it this way with the Hall effect sensors as opposed to your typical current monitoring um, is that you don't have to rip open the power cord to get around one of the legs of your, of your mains voltage. We can actually get it by just going around the power cord. It's a completely non-invasive way um, to do this. And, and as it turns out, some of the um, instrument vendors, of, particularly of more complex instruments, um, they, you know, if you do something to that power cord or if you stick something in line between the power cord and, and the wall voltage, uh, it voids the warranty. So that's one of the reasons that we've chosen to, to go this route. It makes the installation significantly easier and it allows them to, um, to really be confident that nothing's going to happen to the instrument because we cut into a power cord or something like that. <laughs> and that's on the, on the AC power cord, right? That's correct. Yeah. I'm going to have to, I've, I actually have like a Wikipedia page about Hall effect current sensing around AC current. And I'm like, <laughs> I never even heard of that before. So <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know I, that was a, that's a problem with like just a regular coil for current sensing is the alternating current. You just can't, it, it looks like zero, right? <laughs> that's right. And, but it, it all has to do with where in the twist you're actually sensing it mm -hmm. um, because they're, those are twisted. And so, the way we've got the the product architected, um, we can we can no, actually. No. Oh no! I was just saying the normal way of current sensing is just oh, a yeah, coil. Yeah, yeah. That, that's and then, right. And so if you're passing, that's actually how uh, GFCI works. Oh yeah, is, yeah, yeah. Sure. Is when GFCI is if it detects current on AC with both wires, it goes, "Hey, there's leakage somewhere. Trip yeah. it." Um, I, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to read up. Unless you can dis discuss that right now, like <laughs> that's actually super fascinating. It's like, how did the Hall effect sensors work on that? Well, because of the fact that um, you've got this twist going on, and I'm I'm not really an expert in this. We actually have an enormous amount of feasibility analysis that we did on it, but it's it's there's a there's a it doesn't always cancel it out depending on where you're measuring in the twist. Okay, and also of course the the uh, safety ground is going to shield it in some places, so um, we can detect a magnetic field somewhere. And so again, we're only looking for relative changes in that field as opposed to what the field absolutely is um, that we can determine, you know, through our analytics exactly what's going on in there. Interesting. So what kind of industries uh, are, you, are you involved with with the elemental machines? So right now our focus is, you know, we say life sciences, it's pharma, biopharma, biotech. Um, you know, we're located in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is a biotech hotbed. So we have certainly got a lot of um, uh, customers in that area, but, but we really are geographically diverse. We have customers all over the country, but it's, it's really mostly the, the biotech, biopharma kind of space. We started out with... Uh, smaller companies and we are expanding into larger and larger enterprises now. Um, so Steven, do you want to move on to the next topic there? Yeah, let's, let's go for it.
Okay, so um, so what's different about elemental machines than I guess most uh, guests that we bring on is y'all pretty much focus on enterprise customers instead of consumer customers. And I've never had to deal with working with enterprise customers in terms of developing a product. So I'm, I would be very interested in how is that different from a consumer standpoint, de developing a product versus an enterprise developing a product, I should say. Sure. So, um, I mean, that's a really good question. And, and I think it, it also depends on what your definition of enterprise is. Um, you know, throughout my career, I have worked for, um, a number of different organizations that have had quality management systems, whether it be ISO 9000 or ISO 1345 or TL 9000. And I think that's one of the things that, that um, maybe differentiates us um, or all of these organizations from something that's more consumer minded is, is these uh, certifications that we have to get and, you know, having a, a pretty sophisticated quality management system that um, really proscribes the taking of the user requirements, translating them into a set of product requirements, um, and then creating um, all of the documentation to support uh, that you've met those product requirements and, and user requirements, and then having a verification and, and perhaps even a validation on the back end and demonstrating that you've met all these requirements. So I think it's really the, the, the main thing for me is the level of rigor in your overall process going from you know, from from business development all the way until you actually deliver a product that has some some value for the customer. Um, and in fact, uh, Elemental, we just achieved ISO 9001 certification um, this earlier this year, which was a, a huge effort for us. Um, but, you know, I, I, it's funny because I think people, especially if they've never been really exposed to a quality management system, think it's it's a lot of overhead. It's it's the engineers hate it because because um, it's paperwork. But at the end of the day, um, it, it's a lot of best practices, <laughs> and you hope that the people that are doing consumer products are following the same kinds of best practices. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're not following it. Um, you know, with with documentation like like we have at a at a place like Elemental. But um, it is really best practices. And and you know, one of the great things about ISO nine thousand in my experience is that they don't tell you what your process should be the, the at, at its at its basic level it says have a process and make sure you're following it um and and then take a risk-based approach to to working your way through it and so you know that the first place i was exposed to to this kind of thing was at my first job and um iso 9000 was brand spanking new at that time there were very few u.s companies um, that were getting certified and uh I remember they built a process that, you know, was like three feet thick. <laughs> it was it was incredibly burdensome, and I think it's because nobody really knew what they were doing at the time. And and it was a process that we couldn't we couldn't hope to um, to Uphold. pass. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we failed our first audit as a result of that. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and it, it's a learning experience. And then the second company I went to, uh, same thing, ISO nine thousand, but their process was like one page, and it was very easy to follow. Now, now, what we've done here at Elemental actually is, is built a process that is largely based on how engineers work. And, um, you know, our, our VP of quality has documented the process that we were following and says, well, let's just keep following this process. It seems to be cranking out good products. Let's have all of the, uh, the artifacts that show that we're following it. 
and then we can um, our customers can be assured that um, that they're going to be getting a high quality product because um, we are certified to the ISO 9001 standard. So I actually sounded kind of like an ad for ISO 9000, but but I, <laughs> I, 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 uh, I do think that having a, a good quality management system is really a, a key um, a key piece of, of being uh, delivering to enterprise level customers. Mm -hmm. I, I, I've, I've said on this podcast before is uh, like if ISO 9000 is important to you, it's not just to make sure they if you're the same manufacturer, your manufacturer has ISO 9000. It's you also have to make check to make sure what that process is because as you were saying earlier it's like it could be one page long their process and they're they're just following it that's all the right. time that's right but it might not cover everything that it needs to cover that's right there it is however we've mentioned it multiple times and not to boil it down to too low of a level it does give a little bit of warm and fuzzy feelings when you see that whoever you're working with is a iso certified because you know they had to go through something to get that uh, exactly and and uh, it and it's not particularly the easiest thing and and it shows a level of commitment right that that to your point it, they they went through this because they were committed to to making sure that their customers knew that they're delivering a quality product absolutely right yeah and and once again not to boil it down but uh grabbing grabbing a a point of data from a, a thermocouple and displaying it somewhere uh, isn't necessarily like the most difficult thing, but doing it with all of these, uh, I guess, regulations in a way and, and, and backups and quality is what separates it. Yeah. And, and with you know, rigor. With, with rigor. Exactly. And what's interesting is that while we're not actually regulated, our customers are regulated. So they're, right. they're expecting a certain level of quality because at the end of the day, um, a lot of them, they have to, they're subjected to regulatory audits and it's, it's audits that are based upon the data that we're providing. So um, having that ISO 9000 certification gives them the assurance that, that we're gonna be providing uh, a high quality level of data. Their freezer's eighty point two degrees. <laughs> That's right. Well, even even it, back to that uh, power cable you're talking about, where you, they could void the warranty with that. They're in a way they're self-regulating the uh, their own warranty, and and you're you know supplying solutions for that. That's right. Whereas you, I guess you could just go get a current clamp and slap it on there and say, good enough, let's go. <laughs> right. Right. But but again, with a current clamp, they would need to cut that power cord open. No, exactly. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, right. Exactly. Which is, uh, yeah, that, that's, uh, that's a, a disaster waiting to happen. That's, that's right. <laughs> Particularly, you know, I, I, a, lot of our, of a lot of our customers, the people that we actually interact with, these lab ops managers, they're not electrical engineers. They're, they're not computer people. In fact, they usually have to interface with their IT departments. Um, they're guys that know how to um, buy lab instruments and, and, and keep their lab operating. And, you know, there, there's a whole lot of other factors that they can consider. So they rely on us for doing that sort of uh, electrical um, interaction and, and, and really make it problem free for them. Actually, out of curiosity, uh, going going back, uh, do you have any kind of phone apps for being able to display data? Or I guess it's just it's available in the cloud through a browser, right? 
Uh, we actually do have uh, applications as well, and, and um, the, the primary reason for that is they can receive push notifications. I, I guess that's the primary reason. They can receive push notifications in the event of alerts, but um, yeah, they, they can view um, how the various instruments are, you know, the current conditions on those instruments. So right. someone, you know, who's out hiking um, or something, <laughs> they, they might want to see, you know, they get an alert, right? And this is the main thing is they get an alert. And all that the alert says is this this freezer has drifted out of range. And so they might go into the app to then take a little bit closer look at it. And um, they discover that someone's been opening the door 20 times. Exactly. I was about to say is you could put that on your your personal fridge and you can tell if your kid <laughs> is just sitting there in front of the fridge. Yeah, I, I do. Actually, I have one in my house that for a while was connected to my personal freezer. And um, it was kind of depressing seeing it get open so many times. <laughs> <laughs> You know, uh, uh, one thing I'm, I'm I'm curious about is on the enterprise side of things. Um, when it comes to manufacturing and designing for enterprise, do you see that there is uh, any kind of a push for? Uh, this is an odd question, but uh, like the attractiveness of products, or is enterprise okay with? Here's a black box with a thing that you stick on the side of your your fridge, and you're good to go. That's a a good question you know we do certainly care about industrial design we have we have an industrial designer on our team um and you know part of it is because um you want to make these uh, easy to install and so that's a big piece of the industrial design um i, I don't know that there, that anybody cares how something actually looks in a lab um, it might be easier to sell to people who don't know anything about what it is, but they're <laughs> the people right. who signed the check. We, we definitely, and, and I think the other piece of, of having a, a decent industrial design is that you just want it to look like a quality piece of equipment, right? I think we could, you know, we could 3D print these things if we wanted, and, and but they wouldn't look very good. And I think it, it, it would um, defeat some of the quality that we're trying to go for. So uh, the, the aesthetics itself, I don't think, um, the, the people working in the lab care all that much, but but there is definitely an aesthetic angle to the design of the elements themselves. Yeah, I, I guess what uh, what's what's going through my mind now is it it should look like it belongs there, and it should right. look like it isn't gonna break. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. and, and and I think those are those are two keys. Certainly, that it isn't gonna break is a really really important one because. We do want them to really think only about the application and and the element is just sitting on their instrument doing what it needs to do and they should have confidence that it's going to continue to to do what it needs to do for sure um but on the enterprise stuff is in my mind at least this is how i because we were talking about like what do you mean between consumer and enterprise and uh for me it's when you're designing this is just me uh, when I design, if I was designing something for enterprise, usually to me that is a company or is is a group is coming to you to request stuff or a certain product, and you're going to be selling to like one specific group. Whereas a consumer product might be you're doing market analysis on your end to figure out like what it might be the next big thing. This is just like, uh, and then and then designing that. Um, which sounds like you're kind of like right in the middle of those two things. 
Um, so how like so how often do you have to actually do? I think we touched a little bit on this, but how much do you have to actually do like custom hardware software? There, there's we never do custom hardware. It's all okay. Um, you know, quite generic, and and actually that's going to be important as we start to look at new verticals that we want to expand into. Um, the custom software really is is more on this this element the 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 data movers the element D and the element yeah how is it really facing with whatever random machine that they want to get data from right it, exactly and and you know a lot of those machines they just provide a serial interface um, and then we just map to to what's coming off of it so the integrations actually we've written our software in a way that it's just a configuration file that gets loaded into the element and then then they can pull pull it out but um, you know, every now and then an opportunity will come along where there's there's some new interface um, that's running over serial or over Ethernet, and we'll look at the opportunity and say, is this is this really something that we want to make into a product? And then we can do some custom software development to do that. And you know, speaking of of different verticals, um, the first time I visited uh, this your website, and I and I and I you know saw lab. Uh, data sensing, it, it made me think back to my first job uh, where I was designing safety equipment for vibration uh, sensing and, and, and things of that sort. And, uh, and our lab was mainly an electrical engineering lab, but we had plenty of equipment that, uh, you know, we would leave on overnight and we'd temperature cycle things or, you know, we had spurious events or something like that that we were trying to capture on an RMA. So we'd have, you know, our vibration table running for three, four hours trying to find some kind of error in the system. And I could see having a system like this be great to not, so I don't have to just sit in my chair next to the thing and wait for something to happen. So uh, moving yeah. into something that's, you know, perhaps uh, like engineering lab also seems like a like a uh, like it seems like a good parallel. Yeah, I, I think there's lots of instrument types that we could certainly connect to. And, and I'll put you in touch with our business development manager. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, we, we certainly like I said, you know, the data movers in particular, they're they're fairly generic. And so um, we can we can move. Uh, data at a lot of, of a lot of different instrument types um, as we move forward and, and start to look at new verticals. Yeah, we're, we're um, you know, we've built a solution here, um, the IoT devices, the cloud application and the analytics in the middle. Um, and, and that whole solution can apply to lots of different applications. And, um, and, and you know, we provide best in class of, of all three of those. Uh, we're the only ones that are kind of putting all three of those together to, to, to create um, really the, give the ability to uh, allow these lab managers to, to problem solve and, and really optimize the costs associated with running their labs. I can just imagine it now, the lab I'm, I'm working with now, if I had all my multimeters and all my oscilloscopes and everything where I could just leave work and leave my product on and monitor it overnight, that'd be awesome. That, that, that's a great vision. I'm going to write that down. Um. <laughs> Are we, uh, you done, Stephen? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, uh, I think, uh, yeah, I think that's it for me. Do you have anything else, Mike? No, I, I think it's actually been a really enjoyable conversation. And, uh, you know, I, I, um, yeah, I appreciate the fact that you invited me on. Talk to you guys. So, Mike, where can people find out more about you or talk to you? Um, same thing with Elemental Machines. Uh, so, 
I'm on LinkedIn. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. That's probably my most active uh, social media spot. Um, but Elemental Machines, we're all over social media. Um, uh, Elemental underscore IO is, is our Twitter account, but we're on uh, LinkedIn um, as well. So, uh, Or go to our website, uh, www.elementalmachines.com. There's plenty of information there as well. Well, again, thank you so much, Mike, for coming on our podcast and discussing all these topics with us. Thank you for having me. So that was the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We are your hosts, Parker Dolman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Stephen and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. You can find it at MacFab.com slash Slack.